Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This week, brace yourselves, I'm going to be looking at John Milton's Paradise Lost. I know, but I actually think it's amazing. Now, there's 12 books to Paradise Lost. I'm just going to do book one and even then only the greatest hits of book one as I see them. So I think it's very tempting to think Paradise Lost is going to be a long, tedious experience. I actually think there's so much unbelievable stuff in it that you might change your mind. Dr Samuel Johnson, who you may recall is a literary hero of mine from the 18th century, said quite famously, I use famously in inverted commas, I mean in literary circles quite famously, of Milton's Paradise Lost that none ever wished it longer. And that gets quoted quite a lot as a sort of quite comical thing to say about a poem that's regarded as a literary classic. But he also said, and I quote, you could learn the art of English poetry just by reading this one book. So I think that's less quoted because it's more positive and that is the way of the world, of course. My relationship with Milton is sort of two-pronged. Back in uh, the late 70s, early 80s, I know a lot of my literary obsessions. I'm saying literary a lot. I suppose that's inevitable in this line of work. A lot of my literary obsessions started at Birmingham Polytechnic when I was doing an English BA honours course there. And we had an American lecturer there who taught us Milton and who did Lycidas, which is a another poem by Milton that is long but less long than this. And he talks in that about a friend who has died young and in it one of the sort of fates come along with a bored shears, so horrible, nasty scissors. And I remember him in his American accent used to say... Um, and slits the thin-spun life. And that always stuck with me, him saying that in class. And slits the thin-spun life. And you can hear that silken thread of life being by slits the thin-spun. And it's got that hissing, cutting, silky sound to it. And that really stuck with me and made me think that just that bit made me think that Milton was very special. And then I went to see him, one of Milton's, I I think it's officially a mask. It's sort of a play thing at Ludlow Castle. And it was a thing called Comus. And what sticks in my mind about it, it was quite hard to take in as a live performance. But also it was a steamingly hot, 33 degrees day and there was a whole line of old age pensioners just carried out I mean literally carried out in people's arms unconscious fainted by the heat so that's a, a great association I think to have with any written work okay notice how I sidestep the word literary then I'm learning okay so I'm gonna talk about Paradise Lost as I say just book one and I just think there's so much great stuff in it, and I'm hoping to to prove that to you. Bear in mind, he wrote this, and I say wrote, he wrote it in 1658 to about 1663, 
and then it was published in 1667, just to give you the sort of time scale. But when I say I wrote it, he was blind by that stage, Milton. And so he wrote it through one of my favourite words, amanuenses. In other words, he dictated it to family, friends, anyone who'd, um, who'd help him out with his major epic poem. I'm going to begin. There's an aeroplane going over. I don't know if you can hear it. I don't think it gets in the way of... Um, I'm not pretending I'm doing this in the 1660s, so it's fine. Now, most epic poems start with a certain... Um, with bits and dabs before you actually get into the poetry. For example, Milton, I always like this a lot, explains the, the verse that he's going to use, so the form he's going to write in. And one thing he's not going to use is rhyme. And this is what he says of Paradise Lost. The measure is English heroic verse without rhyme, as that of Homer in Greek and of Virgil in Latin. So he's already putting himself up amongst the greats. Rhyme being no necessary adjunct or true ornament of poem or good verse in longer works especially, but the invention of a barbarous age to set off wretched matter and lame metre. So in other words, rhyme is something that people stick on to rubbish poetry to make it sound better. Although he admits that some good poets have used it, he goes on to say, graced indeed since by the use of some famous modern poets carried away by custom. So in other words, they use rhyme because they thought everyone did and so you had to. But much to their own vexation, hindrance and constraint to express many things otherwise and for the most part worse than else they would have expressed them. So in being chained and restrained by rhyme, these poets have made their work worse. He's not going to fall for that. And he gives us one last ping before he goes off um, the rhyme theme. This neglect then of rhyme, so little is to be taken for a defect, though it may seem so perhaps to vulgar readers. So just in case you were thinking, oh, I wouldn't mind a bit of rhyme, he's... Uh, showing you what Venn diagram you would enter if you think like that. There is also a, a thing called the argument at the beginning of every book, which basically tells you what's going to happen in it. So, for example, the argument for book one, I'll just give you a, a little bit. It says, uh, Satan, who revolting from God and drawing to his side many legions of angels was by the command of God driven out of heaven with all his crew into the great deep. Which action passed over, the poem hastens into the midst of things, presenting Satan with his angels now fallen into hell. What it's really saying is spoilers are not going to damage this work because the poetry is so good, it won't really matter if you know what's going to happen. I mean, this is essentially the story of Satan defying God, being banished to hell, and then tempting Adam and Eve to sell mankind out by eating the forbidden fruit. 
A lot of people reading this would have known that story. So I don't think he feels he has to hold the plot back. So he just tells you what's going to happen so you can totally focus on his amazing verse. Okay, now the poem begins, like most epics, it begins with an invocation. And I won't give you the whole deal. Obviously, I'm not going to give you the whole of Book One of Paradise Lost. We'd be here all day, for goodness sake. But imagine if I started this podcast by saying, oh, great muses and gods of podcasts, help me to bring my A-game to today's performance. If that was my norm to do that, then you'd think, oh, that's good. He cares and he's he's humble enough to ask um, the podcast gods to help him out. That's how these things tend to begin. They often ask the muses and various mythological creatures from uh, from ancient times. But because this is um, a biblical epic, he asks various biblical types culminating in the Holy Spirit. Some of you may know as the Holy Ghost, but they seem to have shrugged off. Certainly, uh, I'm a Roman Catholic. We don't use the Holy Ghost much. I think that was felt as a bit populist terminology. Okay. So this is what... And now, if you're still with me, thank you, because I should have got to the poetry quicker, but I just, you know, I'm giving you a ramp to Milton. So he turns to the Holy Spirit. Instruct me, for thou knowest, thou from the first wast present. And with mighty wings outspread, dove-like, sat brooding on the vast abyss and made it pregnant. Come on! Already you must be thinking, whoa, this is a bit better than I thought it was going to be. Don't, though from the first, this is to the Holy Spirit, was present and with... Now this, and this to me sounds very familiar. With mighty wings outspread, dove-like, sat brooding on the vast abyss. So looking out at this chaotic universe. It really reminds me of when Batman sits on one of those sort of eagle-like gargoyles that overlook Gotham City and just stares at his manor, as it were. I don't mean Wayne Manor. I mean his his area that he, he covers, his catchment. Listen to that again with Batman in mind. Thou from the first was present and with mighty wings outspread, dove-like sat brooding on the vast abyss. And it ends there, and made it pregnant. So the Holy Spirit made it pregnant. He brought life. And of course, he also made the Virgin Mary pregnant. And you don't have to believe this stuff, by the way, but you know the stories. So... We get pretty quickly to Satan. I think Milton knows that Satan is where the money is. He's like scary and dynamic and uh, you don't have to tread carefully around Satan because he's Satan. So this is what he says of Satan. Satan, with ambitious aim against the throne and monarchy of God, raised impious war in heaven and battle proud with vain attempt. Impious means lacking respect, especially in God. So Satan has um, taken God on 
with ambitious aim against the throne and monarchy of God raised impious war in heaven and battle proud with vain attempt. So he lost. And listen to what happens to him. Him, the almighty power, hurled headlong, flaming from the ethereal sky. Ethereal meaning heavenly. But wow, listen to that. Him, the almighty power, hurled headlong, flaming from the ethereal sky with hideous ruin and combustion down to bottomless perdition, there to dwell in adamantine chains and penal fire, who durst defy the omnipotent to arms. So let's just look at that. This image, what a, this is the first time we meet Satan in this, and he is hurled headlong flaming from the ethereal sky with hideous ruin and combustion down. He's still smouldering as he drops down from heaven. I mean, this really is post-battle Satan. And what a great, what an entrance Satan has got. And he goes down there to bottomless perdition, so bottomless hell, there to dwell in adamantine chains, chains that are as hard as diamonds, unyielding chains, like the on yielding law of of God and because he durst he dared to defy the omnipotent to arms he he took on God now I know we're supposed to think Satan's the bad guy but already he's taking on God that's quite a thing isn't it so he lands splat in hell and eventually that's where we basically find and we find him flat out still on the canvas after his fight with with God round he throws his baleful eyes so he looks around with his baleful his sort of menacing eyes round he throws his baleful eyes that witnessed huge affliction and dismay mixed with obdurate pride and steadfast hate so he's got all this, the pride and the hate is still in there. At once, as far as an angel's ken, he views the dismal situation waste and wild. So at once, as far as an angel's ken, so from the, the range of vision of an angel, he looks around at where he's landed. The dismal situation waste and wild. Listen, listen to this. A dungeon horrible on all sides round, as one great furnace flamed. Yet from those flames no light, but rather darkness visible. Oh, can, can you even imagine flames that give no light? It's a fantastic idea, but sort of beyond our imagination, I think. This is a world, a world of darkness visible, a, a sort of world of super gloom beyond all your, the, the sort of normal earthly grimness and certainly the, what he's been used to in heaven. OK, so he turns to his right hand man, Beelzebub, you may have heard of. And they talk about this war that they've waged with God in a, in a fabulous piece of sort of post-match analysis. This could be an, an after-match interview. So this is, uh, this is uh, Satan chewing it over. 
and he, he talks of, uh, of, of God. So much the stronger proved he with his thunder. And that's a great description of God, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's all right for him with his thunder. He's got that. That's his sort of superpower. So much the stronger proved he with his thunder. Until then, who knew the force of those dire arms? So we didn't even know he had that kind of power. Yet not for those, nor what the potent victor in his rage can else inflict, do I repent or change. So I'm not scared of his arms, even though I know about them now. When he says his arms, it means his armaments, obviously not his limbs, the powers, his thunder, the way, the way he can dis destroy. Yet not for those, nor what the potent victor in his rage can else inflict, do I repent or change. So I don't care what else, I don't care what he's done to me, I don't care what I know about his power, I don't care what he might do to me. I do not, he doesn't repent or change. The word change crops up a lot in this because I think when you land splat in hell, having been in heaven, the change of you and your surroundings is probably fairly prominent. Yet not for those, nor what the potent victor in his rage can else inflict, do I repent or change, though changed in outward luster. So I've changed physically, I, I realise that. That fixed mind and high disdain from sense of injured merit that with the mightiest raised me to contend, and to the fierce contention brought along innumerable force of spirits armed, that durst dislike his reign and me preferring. So, I know it's a mouthful, but it's going to be okay. Though changed in outward luster, so I don't look, I don't, I'm not all beautifully white and glowing as I was. That fixed mind, so my mind... And high disdain from sense of injured merit, my sort of rage at the injustice I faced in heaven, that with the mightiest raised me to contend. So I dared to take on the mightiest. I was so frustrated. And to the fierce contention brought along innumerable force of spirits armed that durst dislike his reign and me preferring. So not only did I take on God, but I brought along innumerable force of spirits armed. All these other angels and archangels that were on my side that durst dislike his reign, that dared to dislike God's reign, his power, and me preferring. So they, this is not Satan on his own. He, he led a revolution, a, a rebellion here. His utmost power with adverse power opposed. So, yes, he's got the utmost power, God, but we, as adversaries, took him on in dubious battle on the plains of heaven. Dubious meaning hard to predict, hard to say what the outcome's going to be. So he reckons he was in with a chance there and shook his throne. So he's now saying, you know, you know what, we nearly, we shook his throne, we nearly did it. What though the field be lost, all is not lost. The unconquerable will and study of revenge, immortal hate and courage never to submit or yield. So he still got all that, although he lost the battle. Now, 
Of course, the way Milton tells this story, we can hear Satan saying, you know what, I shook the throne of God. It was a dubious battle. In other words, it could have gone either way. It was a close one. This is what I mean by the post-match analysis. But this is post-match analysis of a game we haven't been allowed to see. So at the moment, we've only got Satan's word for it, that it was a close-run thing. And he had a couple of bad refereeing decisions. Otherwise, it could have been uh, it could have been all his. And I like at the end when he says, "What though the field be lost, all is not lost. The unconquerable will and study of revenge, immortal hate and courage, never to submit or yield." I like the idea of Satan saying, "Okay, things didn't go that well, but you know what?" I've still got my immortal hate and I think that will that will take me a long way. I, I like that. He then, um, again, still speaking of God, who now triumphs and in the excess of joy, soul reigning, holds the tyranny of heaven. So after this battle, God is soul, S-O-L-E, soul reigning. It's just him. Now, it was always just God reigning, wasn't it? But Satan has got it in his mind that he was right up there. And this is an interesting phrase. Soul reigning holds the tyranny of heaven. So God, the way Satan tells it, is a bit of a tyrant. That Now that Satan's gone, no one's questioning God. No one's challenging him at all. He's just having his own way. It's interesting in the context because in just before this poem was written, there's been, as you may know, an English civil war when people rose up against the king, viewing him as a tyrant. And in the end, that king, Charles I, was executed. And they had what they call a commonwealth in this country, right? Because a, a republic with Cromwell. At the, at the head of it. And incidentally, Milton was very pro that particular rebellion and actually wrote supporting the execution of Charles I. So now it seems that uh, it's always a bit not quite sure where we're standing in this. Is Milton, he can't possibly be pro Satan, but at the moment, Satan seems to be an interesting, colourful, gripping figure. And also, the way Satan tells it, at least, he's a sort of freedom fighter who, courageously seeking democracy, took on a powerful tyrant. I mean, he does vaunt a lot, Satan. Vaunting means boasting, and he's doing a lot of that. He's saying, you know, yeah, I nearly won that, and I really shook him, and God's frightened to death of me now, etc. But just to give him a bit of edge and a bit of angst and a bit of depth, Milton says, so spake the apostate angel, apostate, sort of disloyal, so spake the apostate angel, though in pain, vaunting aloud, but racked with deep despair. So he's putting a false front on Satan. He's been, oh yeah, I'm this and I'm that, but that sense of loss is still right in at the heart of him. I'm going to read you another 
I just like reading you some really good bits, if that's uh, if that's okay with you. So he looks around at um, hell. Is this the region? This the soil? The clime? Clime as in climate? Is this the region? This the soil? The clime? Said then the lost archangel. This the seat that we must change for heaven. This mournful gloom for that celestial light. And you see how it's happening there with Satan. Then he's he's desperately sad at what he's lost. He has to swap this horror for for heaven, for that celestial light. That's the difference. Mournful gloom for celestial light. That's not much of a good swap. But then he get you get anger and then more sadness. I'm just going to start that again and just listen for anger, sadness, anger, sadness. Is this the region, this the soil, the clime, said then the lost archangel? This the seat that we must change for heaven? This mournful gloom for that celestial light? Be it so. Since he, who now is sovereign, can dispose and bid what shall be right, farthest from him is best. So I don't want to be living somewhere where this tyrant says what's right and wrong. Farthest from him is best. Whom reason hath equaled, force hath made supreme above his equals. So Satan's suggesting that on a reason, an intellectual level, clearly he is the equal of God, but force God's thunder and his powers has won him this war, not any justice. So that's a bit of anger there. Whom reason of equal force hath made supreme above his equals. So he shouldn't be above his equals. Clearly that's wrong. But then, farewell happy fields where joy forever dwells. Hail horrors, hail infernal world, and thou profoundest hell. So again, the rage slightly dips for sadness. Receive thy new possessor. And the rage comes up again. One who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell. A hell of heaven. So he's saying, look, I'm still the same inside, so I don't care where he puts me. What matter where if I be still the same? And what I should be, all but less than he, whom thunder hath made greater. So really, I'm, I'm, the only reason I'm less than him is that he's got thunder on his side. It's the, it's the power thing again, rather than the justice or morality. And now the, uh, the defiance. Here at least we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built here for his envy. So in other words, he won't be coming here because he wants to come and take over. I think it's a terrible place, so he'll never want it from us. Will not drive us hence. Here we may reign secure. And in my choice to reign is worth ambition though in hell. So to be in power, it's more important than where you are in power. And then he sums this up with one line, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And that's quite a biggie. Okay.
Now, I'd like to just go off on a little sidebar here. I don't know if you remember sidebars. During the O.J. Simpson case, they filmed the court proceedings and every now and again, one of the legal uh, guys, male or female, would say, can we just have a sidebar? And they'd all go into one corner and have a chat about some specific subject. So I'd like to have a little sidebar on this before we round off book one. And the topic of my sidebar, you can hear me turning the pages, but I'm not ashamed of that, is how big is Satan? That's my question. Don't send in answers. I'm going to give you some suggestions. When I was a a child, I went to Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery and I saw a sculpture of Satan. I think think it was called Lucifer, but, you know, it's the, the same guy a devil by any other name, etc. And I remember a very sort of massive statue of Lucifer stroke Satan with very big, threatening genitals. And it, it really haunted my nightmares, this giant demon. And I went back to uh, Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery many years later, and it was in the tea room. Nowhere near as big as I remember. Well, the genitals still um, held up pretty well. But it was actually, it was about, I mean, five foot max, probably. It's by Jacob Epstein. But I think the size of it just came from my sort of fear of it. I'd made it bigger in my mind. And yes, I include the genitals in, in, in that. So how big is Satan? Well, here goes. Thus Satan, talking to his nearest mate, so still chatting to uh, Beelzebub, with head uplift above the wave and eyes that sparkling blazed. So he's just got his head above the, it's not even water, it's just sort of, it's like lava. And eyes that sparkling blazed. His other parts besides prone on the flood, so he's lying flat out. Extended long and large, lay floating many a rood in bulk as huge. Now, let me stop you there. So he's lying there. I just want to get this clear. Satan talking to his nearest mate with head uplift above the wave. So he's just lifted his head up to speak and eyes that sparkling blazed. His other parts besides prone on the flood. So he's lying flat out, extended long and large, lay floating many a rood. A rood, I think, is a quarter of an acre. So you're already getting an idea of his size. But then this is a classic Milton moment is when he does a simile. And he says, yeah, it's like when, and then the list could be two pages. I'm not going to stop. This is um, Milton at his name dropping best, but I'm not going to explain them all. He's just thinking of big things from mythology that suggest how big Satan is. He's looking for some good similes. So when he says... In bulk, as huge as you can pull up a chair, because now we're going to get a list. So Satan lay floating many a rood in bulk, as huge as whom the fables name of monstrous size. Titanian or earthborn that warred on Jove, Briarios or Typhon, whom the den by ancient Tarsus held, 
or that sea beast, Leviathan. Now, here's one you might have heard of Leviathan. It's a giant sea beast. That sea beast, Leviathan, which God of all his works created hugest, that swim the ocean stream, him happily slumbering on the Norway foam. You think, hold on. We're talking about the size of Satan here, but now he's, it's like Leviathan has got a spin-off series. He's going to have a little adventure mid-simile. Here we go. So that sea beast Leviathan, which God of all his works created hugest, that swim the ocean stream, him happily slumbering on the Norway foam. So this giant creature lying on the, uh, in the sea in, near Norway. The pilot of some small night-founded skiff. So now someone um, who is um, the pilot of a, a boat that's a bit lost at night in the dark. Deeming some island off the cementel with fixed anchor in his scaly rind moors by his side under the lee. So... He thinks the Leviathan, it's so big, is an island. And fabulously, with fixed anchor in his scaly rind. So he puts the anchor in the Leviathan's scaly skin. And there, moors by his side under the lee, while night invests the sea. So while all is darkness. And wished morn delays. So he waits for morning. So stretched out huge in length, the arch fiend lay. So we've got all those references to give us an idea of how big Satan is. I know what you're thinking. Well, if he's that big, how big's his shield? I'll tell you. I'll tell you about his shield. Um, don't. Thanks for staying this long. I know even the words Paradise Lost would have frightened most people off. Here goes the shield. It's worth hanging around for. Beelzebub stops talking. He scarce had ceased when the superior fiend, Satan, obviously, was moving toward the shore. His ponderous shield, ethereal temper, so tempered, made, forged in heaven. This is like, you know, when you get sacked from a job and you steal some stuff on the last day, Satan has brought his heavenly shield with him. Okay, um, his ponderous shield, ethereal temper, massy, large and round, behind him cast. So it's like on his shoulder behind him, the way Captain America sometimes carries his shield. That's Batman and Captain America so far. The broad circumference hung on his shoulders like the moon. And you think, wow, that's a great description. But then the moon's going to get a slight spin-off series as well here. So hung on his shoulders like the moon, whose orb through optic glass the Tuscan artist views at evening from the top of Thessaly or in Valdarno to decry new lands, to identify, to spot new lands, rivers or mountains in her spotty globe. So the Tuscan artist, I'll explain in a minute, in Italy, in Thessaly or in Valdarno, these places in Italy, to spot new lands, to decry new lands, rivers or mountains in a spotty globe, which is a great description for the moon. 
The thing about this is the Tuscan artist who lived in Fesole and Valdarno is Galileo. And I know you think, oh, that's good to mention Galileo, but it gets better. Milton met Galileo in the 1630s when he was um, on an Italian tour. I mean, you could have poems that refer to Galileo, but referring to him when you've actually met the bloke is a bit unique, isn't he? And, of course, it's hard to get round that he was another rebel who challenged omnipotent religious authority. So it, it's just right for this. Anyway, that's that's the shield. This, I'm still on the sidebar. Don't worry. I know what I'm doing. Then we go to his, to his spear. We've done the shield. Here comes the spear. His spear, to equal which the tallest pine hewn on Norwegian hills to be the mast of some great admiral, were but a wand. So, so his spear, even if you got the tallest pine, which, which you got from Norway to make a mast for some great admiral's ship, it would just be a wand compared to Satan's spear. He walked with to support on easy steps over the burning marl. So he uses this, this like a walking stick, a, a staff, over the burning marl, marl being sort of crumbling soil. So you see Satan walking along with his shield on his back and his enormous staff, his spear, which he's using to walk on crumbling Red hot soil falling away beneath his giant feet. Oh, come on, it's it's pretty good. I'm moving towards the end, so bear with me. I know it's I know it's been long, but you know it's Paradise Lost. Give us a break. I just want to read, and this is the bit where he turns to these fallen rebel angels, and it's it's the pep talk, it's the captain or the manager getting under their skin and trying to get them back, literally back on their feet. He called so loud that all the hollow deep of hell resounded. Princes, potentates, warriors, the flower of heaven, once yours, now lost. If such astonishment as this can seize eternal spirits. So he's saying if, you, if you're going to be this shocked and this downcast, then you've lost heaven forever. We've got no chance of fighting back here at all. It's quite shocking, I think, to hear them described of as the flower of heaven. You've sort of already forgotten that just a short period before they were angels, bright, shining angels in heaven or have ye chosen this place after the toil of battle to repose your wearied virtue for the ease you find to slumber here as in the vales of heaven so is this you're just going to laze around now have you have you given up you guys or in this abject posture have ye sworn to adore the conqueror who now beholds cherub and seraph rolling in the flood. So, again, the reminder that that this is cherubim and seraphim. These were beautiful, 
shining angels that are now cast down here. And he, he's, he's really having a go. In this abject posture, just lying here on the ground, have you sworn to adore the conqueror? So you're going to give up and praise God, who now beholds cherub and seraph rolling in the flood with scattered arms and ensigns. So their, their shields and swords and flags are all over the place. Till anon his swift pursuers from heaven gates discern the advantage and descending tread us down thus drooping so as soon as they see us like this they'll be down here to absolutely finish us off they'll just crush us all with linked thunderbolts transfix us to the bottom of this gulf awake arise or be forever fallen okay he's given them he's given them the big He's given them the big deal that they need to get up now or God might send an army to really, really finish them off. And I love the idea that we still, they're still recently enough left heaven to have that, that inner glow still about them. Listen to this description of Satan. Their dread commander, he above the rest in shape and gesture, proudly eminent stood like a tower his form had yet not lost all her original brightness nor appeared less than archangel ruined and the excess of glory obscured so there's still so much archangel in satan at this point yeah he's he's been burned and battered and he's he's completely defeated but he still has his own personal fire and rage and there's still something of heaven about him his form had yet not lost all her original brightness so he he appears like an archangel ruined so it's still the archangel is still there and what he, he does, and I'll move to the end now of, of book one, is that they build a parliament, if you like, uh, a parliament house where they can get together and discuss uh, their plans, what to do next. He says, um, a non out of the earth, a fabric huge, rose like an exhalation. <sighs> and there's the parliament house, which of course is called Pandemonium just to hammer it all home. And this is how book one ends. Thus, incorporeal spirits to smallest forms reduced their shapes immense and were at large. So these giant demons all shrink themselves down so they can get into the Parliament House. But, you know, he's got that play there of they've shrunk themselves and now they're at large. So it's, a, it's, it's, I'm going to call it a joke by Paradise Lost Standard. Small, but at large, so. Though without number still amidst the hall of that infernal court, but far within and in their own dimensions like themselves, so the, the, the bosses have stayed big. The, the minions have had to shrink to get in the Parliament House. But far within and in their own dimensions, like themselves, the great seraphic lords and cherubim, 
in close recess and secret conclave sat. So the major guys, Satan and Beelzebub and Moloch and all these big demons, still enormous, sitting in close recess and secret conclave, chatting together. A thousand demigods on golden seats, frequent and full. After short silence then, and summons read, the great consult began. So that's the kind of cliffhanger at the end of book one, is that the demons are going to discuss how they fight back from this defeat, how they bounce back. That is a brief, perhaps not as brief as you'd like, but a brief summary of book one of John Milton's Paradise Lost. I end up reading a lot of it to you because I just think the words and the imagery, I think they're fabulous. And I think it's possible with a a very, very famous piece to forget there's probably a reason that it got so famous. So look, I'm not going to say read Paradise Lost, but try reading book one of Paradise Lost. That's not too much. And I think we've said enough about it for you to give, give you an idea of what it's like. And also that character of Satan. I like that William Blake said of Milton that he was of the devil's party without knowing it. He said that so although he was there obviously to say that Satan was bad and God was good and etc., he can't help making Satan dynamic, exciting, sympathetic, even though he probably that's the last thing he wanted to do in the long term. He is an amazing character, the Satan figure, and bad people always a bit more interesting than good people discuss. Thank you for listening to my poetry podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you can never miss an episode. Imagine that. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. Uh, Less poetic, probably funnier. See you next time.